Welcome to Jazz Piano Skills. I'm Dr. Bob Lawrence. It's time to discover, learn, and play jazz piano. Today you are in for an amazing treat. I am joined by jazz legend Dan Hurley. Dan has been a prolific jazz performer, composer, author, and educator throughout his entire illustrious career. Considered a pioneer in jazz education, Dan was recently awarded by the Jazz Education Network, along with Jamie Abersall, David Baker, and Jerry Coker, the distinction of legend of jazz education. Dan Hurley is the author of many, and I mean many, jazz education books that have been used by teachers and students for decades and will continue to be used by teachers and students for decades to come. Dan Hurley toured the U.S. and Canada with the Stan Kenton Band during Stan's illness. Dan toured the U.S. and Europe with the Clark Terry Quintet and has done extensive recording and show work in Dallas, Miami, New York. Dan has performed with Chris Connor, Mel Torme, Al Jarreau, Pat Metheny, Dave Liebman, Woody Shaw, Kai Winding, Freddie Hubbard, <laughs> just to name a few. I am so very proud to say that I personally had the privilege and honor to study with Dan at North Texas State University, now the University of North Texas. And I had the amazing blessing to teach with Dan as a colleague while he served on faculty here at the Dallas School of Music. Now, it is my great pleasure and honor to welcome to Jazz Piano Skills, jazz legend, my friend, Dan Hurley. can't believe I am sitting here with you, <laughs> jazz performer, jazz author, jazz composer, arranger, uh, educator, jazz legend, Dan Hurley. Dan, uh, welcome to Jazz Piano Skills, man. I am thrilled that you are here. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, too, man, because <laughs> I've known you for a long time as a student at a couple different levels, as yes. a teacher at a couple different levels. Right. And uh, it's, it's exciting to see the good you're doing here. Oh, thank you, man. Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. 1984. It was 1984 when uh, I came to North Texas. Now, I knew about you long before, and I, I knew you long before you knew me. <laughs> because uh, uh, that's you are the reason I came to North Texas, to come to study well, jazz. Don't blame me. No. Well, I'm not blaming you, but, but you are absolutely the reason. So I, I was kind of reminiscing this week with knowing that you were coming on to be on Jazz Piano Skills. I was kind of reminiscing back to 1984 and, and you know thinking about how much has changed since then in music and with technology. I mean, the fact that we're doing this right now. Yeah, the fact that things can be uh, streamed and so forth. It opens up a lot of possibilities. Uh, I, I still don't like it. Right. <laughs> right. Kind of old school, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm really old school in that respect. I like to be there to interact with the listeners or the other players. Right. Or, you know. Right. Yeah, you're old school in that sense, but you know, you're you were always on the cutting edge, man. Back in 1984, 85, 86 when uh the first Apple Macintosh came out, <laughs> right? Uh 
and you started the MIDI lab at the University of North Texas there. Yeah. I mean, that was like cutting edge stuff, right? We were all kind of trying to figure out what the heck is this MIDI stuff and how does all <laughs> this, how, how does all this work? You know, uh, that was, that was pretty exciting times. I, you know, I, I'll, I remember a story. Uh, I told you, this was like, this is 85, you know, and I told you, I, I said to you one day, I said, hey man, I got, I, I, I made the plunge. I bought a Macintosh. And you said, oh, wow, wh which one did you get? Because there was the Mac Plus, there was the Mac SE, and then I think there was one other one, I can't remember, but I said, oh, I got the Mac SE, and you said, the one with the 20 megabyte of memory? And I said, yes, and you said, whoa, man, you, you, you'll never outgrow that thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> right? <laughs> Look how different that is today. You know, so it's been amazing. Well, listen, so honored and blessed to have you on Jazz Piano Skills and in, in, introduce you to the listeners from around the world. So I thought the best thing to do, and I would love to hear this too, because quite honestly, I know a little bit about your, uh, just a little bit about your background, your childhood and, and upbringing. So I thought uh, we'd start off by just letting you kind of introduce yourself to the listeners. And, and share with us a little bit of your childhood, how you got into how you got into music, how you got into jazz, and where and how you got into education and so forth. Well, I was born in Quincy, Illinois, and went to elementary school and high part most of high school there. Uh, but when I was young, uh, I was fascinated with the piano. My father was a musician; he was a okay. trombone player and arranger for, for bands that he played with. Oh, wow. So we had a piano at home. Right. And um, he didn't play piano, but he used it in his writing. And uh, I loved to mess with it. And um, they both had so many recordings, both classical music, jazz, all kinds of stuff. So I grew up with a great opportunity to hear a lot of music. And I'd sit at the piano and try to learn the melodies that I liked someone right. singing or playing, you right. know. Trial and error, that's all it was, you know. Yeah. And uh, gradually, I'd hear a few more bits and pieces, you know. So it was it was good practice for my ear. No one at that time told me, you know, music is sound, and you need to learn how to hear Correct. different sounds, you know. Right. But my father exploited me, basically, and used me like a, a, a Aversol play-along record. <laughs> this is way before he... You're right. Jamie put out his first play-along right. record in 1968, I think, Gosh, or 67. That's amazing. And, uh, but uh, I always say there's bad news and good news. The bad news is we didn't have any fake books, so we had to learn tunes off of recordings by ear. The good news is we didn't have any fake books, and we had to learn <laughs> tunes off of recordings by ear. Right. I didn't realize it at the time, but, you know, it, it was good experience. Right. And then finally, my, well, my dad taught me how to play what I call boom ching piano. Bass note in the chord, boom, chink, boom, boom chink, chink, boom, yeah, chink, right. boom, chink. And then he'd wail away on top of it, you know. Right. And uh, he showed me all the chords to play for a song, you know, and I just memorized them. Wow. And finally one day I said, Dad, why do I push those notes? He said, well, that's an F6 chord, F-A-C-D, one, three, five, six. Wow. Wow. A big light bulb went <laughs> on. And then I started figuring out what the other chords I was playing, you know. Right. That was the only theory lesson I ever had in my life. That's amazing, man. Yeah. Uh, and I was embarrassed often that I didn't progress faster or, or as quick as a lot of people I knew. 
but I didn't have the opportunity to go to jazz camps or to buy a buy a jazz improv book or you know. Heck, I don't. That didn't even exist, did it? They, they, no. Right. I mean, it didn't in even fact, exist. in 1974, I had my first book published, which was just a stack of stuff that I gave out to my students, and uh, the guy was wanting to publish a jazz book, and I said, well. You think he'd be interested in this? He said, this is exactly what he's interested in. So that was a book called Jazz Rock Voicings for the Contemporary Keyboard Players. Yeah. And, Still available uh, today. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Still available. I've added a few other ones since. Oh, yeah, <laughs> just a few. But uh, uh, we didn't have play-along records, you know, so I'd just sit and play along, play the melody to a song on a re recording. And maybe I'd embellish it a little bit, put in a grace note or, a, right. you know, right. a little extra pickup note, or maybe I'd do something rhythmic with it, you know. Right. Well, I was improvising. I didn't think about it. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just having fun. <laughs> right. And uh, to this day, uh, I remember thinking at one point, I figured that out. Maybe I don't need someone to tell me everything, you know. Correct. And... Uh, the way I put it is you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Right. But what you got to do is make him thirsty. Very good point. Excellent point. And uh, as teachers, I think we have an important role to guide a student's development. But you can't really teach someone to play jazz. Right. They have to practice. They have to listen. No doubt about it. Right? You know. They got to get immersed. And uh, so it's it's been a lot of fun. Uh, and in the process of teaching, I learned too, and, and it got me to thinking that as musicians, I think we sh should really kind of be part teacher and part student our whole lives, because there's always more to learn. No doubt, no doubt. <laughs> can never get bored with this, you know. Yeah, I, I tell everybody all the time, it's not like a model airplane where you put it together and you're done with it and you set yeah, it on right. the shelf, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. But, uh, so, I, uh, I went to my folks when I was, I don't know, nine or 10 or something like that. I said, could I take piano lessons? Because we had this piano sitting there and they right. both knew what life was like for musicians on the road, crummy hotels, <laughs> awful food, bad, late hours, right. and, you know, right. a lot right. of miles traveling and everything. Said, no, you don't want to study piano. Go, go play baseball. Right. And I said, oh, okay. So I, I, uh, I played baseball, but I, <laughs> But I kept trying to figure stuff out on my own, you know. And uh, I think uh, it wasn't until I got in college that I realized I didn't really have good piano instruction. I had a lot of teachers that taught me to play pieces. Right. And, uh, and that was fine, you know, because right. I learned something in learning those pieces. But no one ever taught me how to practice oh, or right. how yeah, to get right. better. Right. Which reminds me, I, I was on tour with my quartet several years ago, South Texas, San Marcos or somewhere, I forget where we were, and in the music building there was a sign on the wall there uh, quoting Vince Lombardi, great coach of the oh, yes. Green Bay Packers, and it said, uh, perfection is not possible, but in the pursuit of perfection we can gain excellence. excellence. And I, I thought, love that quote. Yeah, oh, I thought that, <laughs> that says everything. That hit home, yeah. But. Uh, uh, I I think of teaching in a different way now. I don't I don't teach 
uh, an agenda. I don't I don't right. have a strict agenda, and I try to encourage students to do different things in their practice and in their listening and so on. But uh, uh, I always tell them, if you have a question, let me hear from it. You. you know, right. you don't have to wait to your next lesson. Correct. Uh, and uh, occasionally I get some good questions. They'll send me a piece of music to look at and explain it to them or something, you know. And uh, the only thing right now these days, it's been a little chaotic because my computer that I had for many years died a couple of months ago. <laughs> That's a nightmare. And, and so naturally I lost a lot of stuff. Oh, my gosh. And right. uh, they, they salvaged, I think, a lot of what was on the hard drive, but then they dumped it on this other drive. And I, now I can't find anything. So your so your Mac Plus finally gave gave way. Yeah. <laughs> the Mac Plus finally gave way. <laughs> so you mentioned Cole College. You know, well, first of all, Quincy, Illinois. I grew up in Rock Island, Illinois. Oh j- wow! J- just up the Mississippi River. Yeah, yeah, I know. Right, I've been down to Quincy, been through Quincy many, many times. Yeah. Right, and uh, uh, in fact, my high school used to play Quincy all the time in basketball and yeah, football yeah. and so on, and. Um, so I'm from the Quad Cities, Moline. You know, Rich Madison was from that area. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I went to high school there with, actually went to high school with my mom, believe it or not. Really? So, yeah, that's really, it's really, fun. you know, it's kind of funny. I, when I got to North Texas, I, my mom gave me a, a yearbook picture of Rich. And I went to Jack Peterson. And I said, hey, you know this guy? And he goes, is that, is that Rich and I said, yeah. And he goes, I'll give you a hundred bucks for that right now, <laughs> you know, because he wanted that picture to, to, to show Rich. So anyway, when you say Quincy, Illinois, man, that's like taking me back to my childhood because I grew up in that area. But Cole College, talk to me about that because you know jazz education just wasn't a, a prominent thing there at, at that time. So what was happening at Cole College? Were you a music major there uh, at Cole College? Yeah, we had. Uh really two majors music education or performance okay and and uh no one did performance everybody were were music ed major because they wanted to get a job being able to teach right right the safe uh, the safe path but you know i remember thinking i wish i could study composition and that just wasn't an option it was either performance or or music right right and uh so I got my degree in music ed, and I taught high school, well, elementary, high, junior high, and high school for two years. And it was great. I had a good time. I enjoyed it. And I think I taught, taught the kids something. But I knew I didn't want to do that the rest of my right, life. Right, right. So I resigned and went back to grad school. And that was when I also wanted to make a break with the north, northeast Iowa weather. <laughs> I was coming home from a job about 2 o'clock in the morning in a bl- blizzard and shoveling oh, under the car. It was something else, uh, right? And I remember saying to my, to my bass player friend that was with me that night, that's it, man. I'm going south. I don't care where, but I'm going south. But I'd heard about North Texas, and I'd heard about the, the jazz program there. So I thought, that's where I'm going. Yeah. And uh, Great decision. Yeah, it was it was a great choice. Um but uh, when I started as a grad student there, I was a music ed major because that's what I'd done before. And the same semester, I took a jazz styles class from Sam Adler, the composer who studied with Paul Hindemith and so wow. on. And uh, I said, 
do you think I could take your stylist class? He said, oh, sure, of course you could, because I, or no, no, I asked him if I could be a, a composer major, com composition okay. major, and I had taken his stylist class, so I apparently did okay in that class, because he said, oh, you're, you're fine, yeah, we'll, we'll do composition, and uh, so that was a great experience. Uh, he he insists I write at least eight bars every day, and he'd say, uh, "How did he, how did he put that?" I don't know. When I'd bring him in something to to look at, he'd look it over and he'd say, "Now because of what happened back here, thirty measures before, that has to be an F sharp." Yeah. And I go in like, "Whoa, really? <laughs> wow." And after I thought about it for a minute, I realized he's right. <laughs> so it was a kind of a different level or way of thinking about right, music that right. was very uh, stimulating to me, right. to put it mildly. Um, so what did you, you ended up with a master's from the University of North Texas. Yeah, I had a master's. It was North Texas State University at that time, right? Yeah, it, yeah, it wasn't the University of North Texas yet. Yeah. Yeah, because when I came when I came in 1984, it was North Texas State University. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was just the last a couple of years after that it changed. It did. It, I think yeah. it was around 1988, 89, 90, somewhere in there that it changed to the University of North Texas. Well, anyway, because of that degree, I got a job at Kansas State University teaching classical theory. Yeah. And composition and right. so forth. Right. And uh, there was no jazz program there. But they had a jazz band, and I'd occasionally write them a chart, you know, and so right. forth. And uh, but the the big uh, um, decision that came along, due to Leon Breeden, who was my mentor and in charge of the jazz program for many years at North Texas, uh, he recommended me for a job in California that was going to be half classical and half jazz. And I th think. Do I want to teach jazz? I want to be a composer, you know. Wow. I want to have my music played by great string quartets and symphony orchestras and everything. Wow. So you I know? didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, composition was your passion. That was my passion, and I thought, you know, I, I like jazz and I like to play jazz piano and so on, but do I really want to teach it? You know. Right. So I finally said, okay, we'll give it a try. You know. I, and that's been the story of my career, really. Some opportunity comes along, and I'd say, yeah, why not? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the only one I decided not to be considered for was in uh, Sydney, Australia, uh, a theory position there. I was thinking about really moving at one point, and that was part of the reason wow. I didn't want to do it either. But uh, Mike Knock, fine piano players from Australia, and I met him one time when I was down there with Jamie, and uh, I met some cool musicians, some good musicians. Yeah. But anyway, uh, what was I saying? Uh, About Leon breeding the composition. Oh yeah. Right. So I decided to try the the job in California, and I did that, and uh, I was teaching classical piano and classical wow. theory, and and jazz improv and jazz listening and so on, you know, right. half half and half. The Monterey Jazz Festival wanted wow. them to hire somebody. And the person that had preceded me in that job, uh, oh no, it wasn't directly preceded, but Jerry Coker had 
taught there. And uh, I think, uh, I don't know how that all came about. Jerry Coker had also worked for Bill Lee at Sam Houston State in Texas. Oh, no kidding. He was the dean of the music wow. program down there. And uh, so then, you know, I was there three years, and Jerry called me up and said, you want to come to Miami and work with me down here? I said, you bet. Wow. <laughs> warm, warm. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I love the winters there. Yeah. Magic. But the summertime. Hot, right? Yeah. Did a, I did a couple of things out of town in July and August, you know, and flew, flew back to Miami in an air-conditioned airplane, walked through the air-conditioned airport, out into the parking lot, it's like someone took one of those little army bank blankets that was soaked in water and just put it over me. And I thought, wow. Wow. But uh, it was great. I really enjoyed working with Jerry. I mean, I just thought, this is one of the guys in jazz education. I got to, you know, learn from him. You well, know? you, I, when I think of jazz education, I think of you, Jerry Coker, David Baker as as the pioneers you know well i think john mohegan john mohegan and then you jerry coker and david baker as the pioneers of jazz education well i think i think we all made some contributions jerry and i did a lot of interesting things with courses and with groups you know right. we had uh a couple of big bands but we had groups that were kind of like eight or ten pieces that weren't right. combos but they allowed for a different kind of writing and right. different kind of playing and so right. and uh, and but we really promoted this combo small group right concept combos directed by students right because first of all there's not enough teachers to stand and get together and rehearse 10 or 12 or 15 right. combos right. Every, every week right so you want to lead a band okay there you go there you go right yeah but uh there were some good years there but the the dean had a funny philosophy jerry and i couldn't get any help from him in ways we needed in terms of supporting uh the, the jazz program things things we needed yeah, right. to support the program right. charts just a copier you know right we right. came back at the end of the summer and the copy machine was gone and we just kind of <laughs> said what Yo, you know. yeah yeah what do you do now yeah right so anyway uh that was at the end of my second year there i was thinking i really need some time to practice I've, i'm not happy with my security on some scales and some keys so i need to go back in the shed for a while so i'll just quit I, I worked on Miami Beach, tried to save as much money as I could so I could afford to be broke. Right. And have, right. A, have a little cushion to <laughs> right. save the day, you know. Right. And uh, actually, as it turned out, I worked enough, and my ex-wife worked also, so we didn't really have to go into the savings too much. It, right. It worked out pretty good. But uh, uh, interesting, interesting place. So how'd you get from Miami? How'd you get, was it from Miami that you went directly to North Texas to teach no. at North Texas? No. No, okay. Uh, I went to 
North Texas two different times. One when I went down there for grad school in '63, and then '77 when I came back to join the faculty. Okay, right. But were you at Miami before uh, the 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 teaching position before North Texas was the Miami position? What What happened was uh, the Miami thing faded, and uh, I packed up my bags and went to New York. Okay. And I'd lived in New York when I was in high school and younger. Okay. But I, you know, we had some little high school groups, but right. I didn't get to play with anybody that was could really play, you know, right. or study with anybody that right. I liked to. So uh, it was a great experience, and I just loved New York anyway. I always say it's a great place to visit, visit, but you shouldn't live there. <laughs> That's great, right? You always hear it the something other like that. Yeah, that's great, man. That's but, awesome. But uh, uh, so at North Texas, I mean, you were there during the years where it really exploded, where it really became yeah, the were, jazz school. Yeah, there were good good years. I was there from sixty three to sixty six for grad for school, school right. and then I came back in seventy seven and retired in. 2002. I, right. was, I was there 25 years. So second. when when you went back to teach, was Rich Madison already there and Jack Peterson? Rich Madison, Jack Peterson were. They were uh, already there? Wow. Yeah. Uh, Jim Riggs was Jim there. Jim Riggs, right. Uh, a couple other people. And Breeden was still the, uh, the, the director Breeden was of the one, the 1 o'clock. Right. Running the program. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, when I got Back to North Texas. Well, I went to New York. Spent a couple of years freelancing. You know, had some fun. Uh, while I was there, I did a couple of tours with Clark Terry. One in the states, one overseas. And now, how did you connect with Clark Terry? How did that come about? Uh, I think I met him when I was teaching in Kansas State, and he they brought him in as a clinician, uh, guest artist. You know, and so they wanted me to put together a local rhythm section to accompany him, you know. Wow. And I remember the first tune we played, which was at a session in the afternoon, wasn't an evening concert. I'm sitting there kind of waiting for a, a space in his plane to drop a little comma in there, you know. And it, no space. I'm going, what's going on? And I turn around and I look and I see him breathing in his nose and blowing out the horn, rotary breathing, you know. And I think, oh, my gosh, wow. <laughs> He's phenomenal. But anyway, that was the first time I got to play with him and, and get acquainted. And then we did a couple of festivals together, other places. Right. And uh, so he called me up for this tour of the States, which was a mini Newport tour. It was it was uh, like three groups on the tour at any time. Wow. And we'd all do one concert, big concert in whatever city we played in. But while we were there... We'd go out to different schools and do clinics and things like that. So he asked me to do that because of that. Wow. And uh, and while I was living in Brooklyn, uh, my friend Ed Sof came over one day. We had a little session at the house, and he said, hey, you should come out. Uh, Clark, we're playing with Clark uh, Saturday night at some place. You, know, you ought to come out and say hello. And I said, hey, yeah, that sounds great. I'll do it. So uh, I went out to this uh, hall where they were playing, went backstage, and we were having a real nice talk, just, how you doing, man, and everything, and uh, he says, well, you want to play? 
because the piano player hadn't arrived. <laughs> and he'll go on mention. I don't, oh, I don't want to slam somebody. Right, right. But uh, it's suspected that he had a lady. Okay, yeah, right, right. But, but he hadn't arrived. I said, well, what are you going to play? He said, oh, you know the tunes. And I said, hmm, I hope so. Because you know? <laughs> right. Clark never called tunes. He'd, he'd play part of something in right. front. He wouldn't tell you what key. He'd he just figure started. you know the key or you hear the key. Right, right. So he starts out noodling around and thinks C minor. Ah, it's the bridge to secret love. Okay. And uh, and away we go. And away you go, right. And uh, so I... I got through the gig all right, you know. I knew all the tunes and, and didn't embarrass myself too much. And about two weeks later, he called me to go to Europe. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so I thought, glad I knew the tunes. Glad you knew the tunes. <laughs> Did you do a little mumbles with him? Did he do mumbles? Oh, he hated to do mumbles. Uh, did, did he really? Yeah, but overseas, he'd, he'd do it in three or four languages. <laughs> That's all. Yeah, he'd do a, a French mumble, an Italian mumble. Oh, that's hilarious. I never thought about that. Yeah. Oh, that's funny, man. Oh. He, he was a great cat to work for, a great, uh, great human being, period. Yes, right. But a wonderful sense of humor. And, and what Didn't he live here in Fort Worth or Dallas? Wasn't he from Texas? No, uh, he was from St. Louis. St. Louis, okay. But he, uh, I think he had a girlfriend that lived in Dallas or Fort Worth for a while. Well, yeah, maybe that's maybe that's what I'm thinking. I yeah. think it might be. Yeah. So okay, well, uh, how about Stan Kenton? You you perform with Stan Kenton? Uh, well, I did the summer clinics with the Kenton band. Okay. Because uh, Stan didn't teach; he was just there as a figurehead, you know. Right. Stan Kenton Jazz Clinic, right. and the band would play every night. Right. And so on, and. Uh, but he didn't want to teach theory, so he'd hire somebody like me to teach a oh, theory class okay. and so on. Right. And uh, and we'd do a rhythm section class. I, I remember one day I had a real epiphany. Uh, we were getting ready for a rhythm section class, and I was just sitting there playing something on the piano. And uh, uh, now I'm having trouble remembering the drummer's name. Well, I'll use a... Uh, there were a number of great drummers right, on the sure. Kenton band. No doubt, right? I think it was uh, John ah, he's from Indiana. It will come to you, man. Anyway, uh, he sat down at the at the drums and started playing along with me. And I thought, oh boy, that feels good, you know. And we. Played a little bit and finished the tune, then we had to start the class. John Van Olen. Okay. That was the drummer. But uh, that it really struck me, we didn't have a bass player. It was just me and John. Right. And that felt great. That was a real epiphany, man. Oh, my Because I was hardcore. Right? you got to have a piano, bass, and drums. Right. Right. <laughs> and and uh, that was a real important lesson. But... Uh, Usually one night during the camp, we'd have a small group night. Stan would kind of give the band the night off. and then. But I'd always grab some guys out of the band to do a quartet or a quintet right. or something like that. And Stan was totally cool with these. Yeah, you know, great. That's awesome. And uh, so Peter Erskine, I remember Peter and I played a free piece. And 
very creative cat then. I mean, when he was like 18 or something, you know. And, uh, but he came kind of fishing for a response or a compliment or something. And I said, Peter, sound great, man, but don't play everything I do. Because <laughs> he was just imitating. Right, you know? right, right. I said, you have some ideas. Let me let me hear them. Right. And uh, so ever since then, he said, the guy taught me how to improv. Oh, that's awesome. That's a great story. <laughs> yeah. Right. Now, Stan Kenton had a, a love for North Texas, too, right? University of North Texas. Yeah, he, his whole library went to North Texas. That's, yeah. And yeah. Of course, Kenton Hall, named after Stan Kenton. It's fantastic. Yep. So, okay, so between you, I mean, how many books have you? How many books have you written? How many books? Yes. I don't know, several. Well, let me see. I got a list of some here. Uh, jazz rock voicings for the contemporary that, keyboard that, player. That was the first one right? that I had published. Scales for jazz improvisation. Jazz improvisation for keyboard players in three volumes. Yeah, three volume set. I remember that. Jazz tunes for improvisation in two two volumes with uh, you, you, Rich Madison, Jack Peterson collaborated mm-hmm. on that effort. Uh, in fact, that was the book we used in improv class at, at North Text. Yeah. yeah, the Jazz Language, which I think is like an iconic book in jazz. I like that book. Oh I my like gosh, I, everybody uses it. You know, the only, only problem is I, I gave it to Hal Leonard, and they had, didn't do diddly to promote it. I was really disappointed. Yeah, because that's a that's maybe one of the finest jazz education books ever. I felt good about it. You should, you know. Yeah, you should. But it, it's tremendous. Uh, the jazz sound, jazz piano voicing skills, jazz improvisation, uh, pocket guide, magic motives, uh, a method for developing jazz vocabulary, the essential jazz harmony book. How many lifetimes have you lived, man? <laughs> Well, I've, I've tried to make things a little better. My my goal has always been to make things as simple and clear as possible. Right. I don't want to impress someone with my vocabulary. Right. Literary vocabulary. Right. I want to guide their progress, get them moving, you know. Yeah. The thing of it is that sometimes it's hard to tell. There, I, I believe that all humans have a musician inside of them. Right. But the the musician uh, reviews itself in different ways. It may be just because of someone who likes to sing along with the radio. You know, they, right. they right. remember tunes and learn. Right. And uh, so it doesn't have to be any elaborate thing like a composer does or a jazz arranger does or anything like right. that. But it's all important. You it, know. Absolutely. And. Yeah. So I, 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 my main line is students, when I asked them to play the melody to a song, I said, don't play it like you see it in a fake book, all in quarter notes and half notes. Do something with it. Correct. Make it your version of it. Correct. And, uh, Correct. Mo- most, of the, most of the time they realize that, and it's kind of like, yeah, that'd be fun. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's so important. You know, I agree, you know, making music is kind of like a birthright you know we, it, the musician is, is in us and, yeah. and you know the thing that i always try to stress upon students all the time i want everybody to play regardless of how well you play or how phenomenal you are it you know i always compare i said music could learn something from the uh, uh, prof- uh, L, uh what is it the l uh the, the, the golf the pga 
professional golf, golf association. Right. They want everybody playing golf. Everyone. <laughs> yeah. Whether you're good, whether you're bad, they want you to enjoy the game. Yeah. And 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 I said, you know, music. We could we could learn from that, right? I think so. We want everybody to enjoy the thrill of making music at whatever whatever level. And and I remember I had a teacher when I was in high school. You know, uh, he said to me, I'll never forget this. He said, Bob, um, well, he he was wanting me to look at some Oscar Peterson transcriptions. And I was really young and, and foolish. And I said to him, well, you know, I I, I, I like looking at those transcriptions, but I, I, I'm afraid that, you know, I, I want to play. I don't want to end up playing it sounding like Oscar Peterson. And he goes, <laughs> and he, he, he says to me, Dad, he goes, he goes, Bob, he said, you will you will never sound like Oscar Peterson. <laughs> and my heart went right down to my feet, right? But then this is what he said right after it. I love this. And he goes, and Bob? He goes, and Oscar Peterson will never sound like you. <laughs> he said, you got to be you. You, you got to be you. And I have play. to tell you my Oscar Peterson story. When we were uh, in London with Clark Terry, right. we were playing in a club there called Ronnie Scott's, a great jazz right, club. Right. And uh, one night, about halfway through the first set, Clark gets on the mic and says, O.P., is that you? Ladies and gentlemen, Oscar Peterson. Oh, my goodness gracious. And I'm going, yeah. oh, my God, how did I sound on that first half of the set? I, <laughs> I hope I didn't embarrass myself too much, you know. Right. But fortunately, Clark invited him to sit in, so I didn't have to play the rest of the set. Right. Oh, my gosh. And then on the break, uh, I got to meet Oscar, and I said, I've loved your playing for so long, I can't tell you. Thank you, thank you, thank right, you. Right, right. He said, well, I enjoy your work. And uh, I took the use of the word work to be a, a qualification. It means you're doing okay, but you're working at it. <laughs> which, you know, which, you know, which you know he didn't mean it that way, man. No. Not no. at all, right? But that's that, that's, that, that's that musician in us, man, always wanting to be better. Well, we, we can be a tough taskmaster for we, ourselves. We can. You know? We can. Uh, and that's another thing I, I tell a lot of students all the time. Hey, cut yourself some slack, you know? And first of all, don't worry about mistakes, because Miles Davis said there are none. That's right. <laughs> and ultimately, mistakes are part of your learning process. Yeah. In fact, you learn the most when you screw up. Yeah. Did you have you ever heard Herbie Hancock tell the story about when playing with Miles? And yeah, he, and he played it wrong chord. He literally played a mistake, and he said it was flat out just flat out wrong. Yeah. And Miles ran with it. And. And he goes, he made it sound like it was absolutely intentional. <laughs> you know, it's unbelievable. So between you, um, like I said, you, Jerry Coker, David Baker, if you put all your books together, I think y you can comfortably say that you've educated several generations of jazz Well, I musicians. hope I've done some good. I've, I, I get feedback here and there along the way that, that makes me uh, feel like it helped no there's no know. doubt and uh talk a little bit about you and jamie abersall have had a, 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 a relationship for many many years in fact you've you've well are on many of the jamie abersall collections uh playlongs i'll tell you how that happened 1968 i think uh, i've been doing the kent stan kenton clinics and uh but i knew a lot of musicians that were on the national stage band camps Right, and so that summer '68, 
um, I was hired to do three national stage band camps, one in uh, uh, Salt Lake City, one in Portland, one in Seattle. No, there was a fourth one. Uh, what's the university in Illinois? Uh, I can't think of it now. Anyway, so I met Jamie there. In fact, I was walking through the music building looking for a room, and I come by this room where Jamie's talking to a bunch of students. And without skipping a beat, he says, yeah, well, I, I've heard that Dan Hurley does that, but I don't think it's a good idea. <laughs> and I'm going, what? I haven't even met this guy oh, yet. Oh, that's hilarious, right? <laughs> oh, that's funny. But uh, it led to many oh. fun years. You know, he's yeah. got a great, unique sense of humor and uh, and is a really good musician. Right. And uh, a passionate uh, supporter and, and recruiter for people to help stop smoking and oh think, wow oh yeah i didn't i didn't realize that about jamie yeah he was at the jazz camps he'd always have a couple of glass urns with a charcoal lung in, in it oh know, no kidding from somebody smoking oh wow yeah but uh uh the first jazz camps we did together as combo camps were smaller and we had maybe a dozen or 15 faculty at most. Right. Whereas in recent years, he's had 65 or 70 faculty, you know, because yeah. they're 300 people, you know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so we, we got to play together a lot, and, and uh, I did some things besides the camps with him, you know. And, um, you know, we just became friends. I brought him, I think, uh, the fall after those stage band camps, I brought him out to California to work with my students at Monterey. And uh, and uh, it's just been a great, great oh, no. experience knowing him and working with him and yeah, and and disagreeing with him. He's very opinionated, but opinionated about some things, and that's fine, you know. I am too. Well, right. You have convictions. We had a we had a big argument about chord symbols and nomenclature one time, and. Uh, I recalled going to a, a a panel discussion in Reno at the Reno Jazz Festival one year where they had a half a dozen great musicians lined up and they were going to talk about it and decide once and for all what oh. chord symbols we use. <laughs> do we say C-M-I-N or do we right. say M-I or do we say C-dash? Well, or... Right, and students get very confused. All, but... they, all they did was argue for oh. an hour. <laughs> That's all they did. <laughs> they accomplished nothing, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah. I thought, I'm not surprised. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. Oh, you know, I forgot one thing. Um, after New York, I went to uh, Phoenix for two years. I got hired to do uh, co-lead a new jazz program there with the guy that was a saxophone teacher and and ran things without any help for wow. a number of years. And uh, his students used to go to him and say, when could we have an improv class? And he'd say, just shut up and learn your lessons. But Classic answer. But it was a great experience for me because of that. It, there was no jazz program entrenched and going it was brand new right. and so we had a kind of educate attitudes uh well 
I mean, you're you you're a pioneer. I mean, everywhere everywhere you had to go was was forging new ground. Quite honestly. Yeah. You know, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. There's no there's no question about it. Now you think about the jazz programs that exist around the country at the different schools, universities, commercial oh, yeah. music programs, right? Up till 1967, North Texas was the only school that offered a degree in jazz. Correct. And, and that was actually in dance band. Right, right. That was the way they s slipped it in under the door. Right. Oh, man. So, yeah, so, I mean, you, you like like I said, you, J Jerry Coker, David, pioneers, we owe so much gratitude to you guys for forging the way for jazz musicians and jazz educators and jazz education. Well, I uh, I feel very fortunate to have had the opportunities I had. Uh, although, when uh, I was asked to come for an interview by the search committee at North Texas, uh, I remember someone looked at my resume and said, well, you see, you've been here two years, and you have been here three years. Oh, and, right, right. And so on. I know where this and, is And going. I said, well, uh, Mainly, if I've seen an opportunity where I feel like I can contribute, I, I want to te test it out and right. see. And I said, but you know, sometimes I wish people would leave me alone. <laughs> I said that to a member of the search committee. <laughs> and you still got hired. And I got hired, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, the dean, the dean in North Texas was the only dean I ever worked for that really administrated. Yeah. And he, he ran a tight ship. He did a good job. Mark Myers is his name. Mm -hmm. And he's the one that hired me and said, no, you don't want to come in with full professor. Wait, you get a promotion, you know. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, okay, so now I, I want to do a little rapid-fire session with you okay. for our listeners. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to throw out some different jazz piano skills. And then I just want you to talk off the top of your head with regards to maybe some do's and some don'ts, words of encouragement and pearls of wisdom from Dan Hurley okay. with regards to these jazz piano skills. So the very first one, the classic of the granddaddy of them all, practicing scales and arpeggios. What what are some do's and don'ts and advice you can give jazz piano skills listeners? Well, it's all good. Uh, you can arpeggiate just triads, major and minor triads in, in all keys. You can arpeggiate seventh chords or ninth chords. I used to actually arpeggiate 13th chord going one, three, five, seven, three, five, seven, nine, you know. That's very actually good. Actually going up right. a third. So Correct, right. And uh, there are a lot of variations you could do with that. Right. Uh, mainly, I divide practice into two parts. A mechanical practice where you do the math and get the right notes. Right. And a musical practice where you make music out of it. That's fantastic. You know. Yeah. They're both important. Absolutely. And uh, so playing arpeggios and scales and things like that. When, when I wrote my scales book, that was in about 1971 or something like that. No, it must have been, must have been later. No, that's about when it was. Uh, I decided I didn't really feel secure with all my scales and all keys. So I wrote out all scales and treble and bass clef and all 12 keys so I could put fingerings in if I wanted to. This is my practice workbook. Yeah, right, right, right. And uh, uh, See, that, that's vital, right? I call that paper practice. I tell students to do that kind of work today. Well, the, it took a lot of time to write all those scales. Yeah. It was 
<laughs> a lot of pages. But you know what? When I went to the piano and started to play a certain scale in all keys, it was kind of easier. Yeah. Because in the process of writing that scale out, I would visualize it in another way. I mean, we, we, we visualize music by seeing an imaginary keyboard in your right. head Correct. and seeing your hand on the keyboard or seeing notes right. on a staff Correct. or hearing what it sounds like. You know, right. They're all important. Absolutely. Uh, but again, the, the mechanical practice involves a lot of that. Um, I, I ha, am eternally grateful to my great and only great piano teacher. Uh, I didn't have a good piano teacher until my sophomore year of college. He was a Juilliard guy, his name was Herbert Melnick. And he was prodigi prodigious sight reader and technician. Wow. He, they'd hire him to fly, you know, to Cleveland and do a concert with no rehearsal with somebody or something like that. Holy smokes. Yeah, I mean, something. Uh, unfortunately, the man was in an auto accident and was oh. killed at a far too young age. But I went in for my first lesson with him, talking about scales and arpeggios. He said, play a C major scale. And so I played a C major scale, and my fingers were flying around in there. And he said, oh, stop, stop. I said, what's the matter? He says, you're wasting motion and energy. Keep your fingers on the keys. I said, really? I started, you know, we spent the rest of the lesson on that. And, and then uh, he'd make me do it, I don't know, for like six months or something right. till, till right. my hand was relaxed and functioning the way it right. should be, you know. Right. And, uh, and then, oh, that reminded me of another thought. Now I can't remember. Uh, so how do you encourage the students to do the music side? So there you have with the scales and arpeggios, you have, like you said, the, the math side or the, the mechanical side. Well, different ways. Uh, I, I want them to feel strongly about the melody and how they present right, it. Right, right. And I said, you know, you can embellish things, you can add little fills and extra things, but you have got to be faithful to the melody as the composer wrote it. Absolutely. And because uh, that's one of the main yeah, reasons we picked the tune. Well, right. And can't you tell when, when somebody's improvising whether they know the melody or not? <laughs> oh, yeah. It sticks out like a sore thumb, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, I also, along with that, encourage people to know what key they're in. Right. Right. And, you know, I said in the Great American Songbook or jazz compositions, you have lots of changes of key. Sometimes only one change from a major key to the relative minor. Right. And back again. Right, right. Sometimes the cadence is two five one progressions in several keys, you right, know. Right. But know what key you're in because if you can just sound like you're in the right key, that's a good start. That's a great start. Be in you, the right key. You may not play a great melody, but at least you won't sound horrible, you know. I said that's been my goal my whole life is just sound okay. Right. I'll settle for that. Yeah, that going back to the Vince Lombardi, right? Yeah. It's certain grab excellence, right? So but, no, what I was going to say, though, is uh, I encourage students to spend at least 10 or 15 minutes of each less, of each practice session uh, doing something in all keys. Okay. It might be arpeggiating a chord, or it might be playing a scale or a certain kind of mode. Right. 
or it might right. be playing a two five one progression with the left hand. Right. Playing in all twelve keys, and uh, uh, moving chromatically up or down through all keys. Then, when you feel like you're fairly secure, go around the cycle of fifths, go up a fourth or down a fifth. Right. Because you have to know it better Correct. if you're going to jump to it. Absolutely. So, uh, the piano, the mechanical practice is to kind of liberate you so that you are prepared to make music. Right. And uh, um, I, I also like to think about all the times I listen to jazz at the Philharmonic concerts, recordings where right. there were right. Norman Granz or somebody yeah. like that, and, and uh, uh, there were maybe eight or ten musicians on stage, you know. Right. And right. how some of the great players really didn't know that much about theory, but they knew what key they were in, and they knew how the melody went. Correct. And so instead of playing the autumn leaves going da 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 da, they go boop ba doo 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 bee deep. Right, right. And give their own interpretation of the feeling of it, you know. So, um, oh, on. and here related to that, one of the great things about jazz, I think, is it's a very personal music. No doubt. In classical music, you know, we know the cliches and the typical kinds of elements that we find in the music of Mozart or Beethoven or right. Chopin or whoever. And so we can turn on the radio and say, oh, that's Chopin, you know. Right. Or that's, you know, Mahler or whatever. Well, in jazz, it's it's more personal. And uh, we can say, yeah, that's jazz or that's country music or that's right. classical. Right. But in, in a personal way, we recognize the cliches or the favorite licks. Right. Uh, and we say, oh, that's Tommy Flanagan, or that's Herbie Hancock. Right. You know. Very good point. Yeah. And Very good point. Uh, I, I've noticed as I've traveled out of the country, in Europe and so forth, and uh, went to South Africa a couple of years ago, and uh, I hear a national voice. I, I hear a, a, a very personal sound that's I think is related to the folk music and and the musical experience of right. the players over there. Right. Whatever country. Right. I, I can remember when I'd hear some English players trying to sound just like Charlie Parker. And they, maybe they did, but it was just like it sounded like some people trying to sound like, like Charlie, Charlie Parker. Parker. Right, yeah. right, right. And uh I think uh it's important to to leave ourselves open to express our experience. And uh, it might involve hymns, having played in church, or it might involve, you know, so there's right, some right. very soul-rooted musicians right. who have played a lot of blues and so forth. And, and it's all good. All good. As, as Duke Ellington said, there's only two kinds of music. Good, the good music and the other kind. That's right. So, okay, uh, what, what advice can you give to jazz piano students uh, I find an area that's very confusing and challenging for students voicings you know voicings if they don't have a real uh, strong approach to study in voicings it can become like fishing line real quick get tangled up really quickly and get run down some blind alleys so what what advice can you give the listeners on how to approach the best ways to approach getting some really good jazz voicings under their fingers. Well, uh, start with the idea that 
the important tones in any chord are the third and seventh. Right. Re they reveal whether it's major or minor, whether it's dominant or major, and so forth. And so uh, important tones, extensions like 9, 11, 13, alterations, sharp 5, sharp 9, whatever, any uh, alterations or extensions are important in describing the sound. Uh, now, as far as voicings, there's a, a lot of systems and ways of going about it. Uh, I like the thing that I've been using the last few years called magic voicings. Right. Where uh, if you play an E flat, G, A, D, below middle C with your right hand and try putting different bass notes with that. You can put a C with it, you can put an F with it, you can put a B with it, you right. can put an E flat with right. it, you can put an A with it. Right. <laughs> Very versatile. Right. And that, that that's not the only possibility. But there are many voicings that are very versatile, like two open fourths, for instance, a right. fourth stacked on another fourth. That could be a dominant chord, it could be a major chord, it could Correct. be a half diminished. Right. Um, so it's, it's a lot about vocabulary. Voicing vocabulary is going to involve, well, if, if you ask me to say, what is jazz harmony in 25 words or less? Well, it's chords with extensions or alterations and tensions in them. So, for instance, when we Correct. have a, a voicing like E, G, A, D, we've got a tension between G and A because right. they're a step apart. And uh, those tensions add to the color and the flavor of jazz harmony. Right. We, in that we don't normally want to play just triads. Right. There are spots where triads are brilliant. I remember George Sheeran telling me one he came his group played a concert at the college I was going to in Iowa and uh, we had a, a friend in common or something long story short he winds up at our house after the concert waiting to catch her train at four o'clock in the morning you know oh my but it was a great hang you know no doubt right first of all he loved to tell jokes he had great jokes but uh Dance a piano player? Oh yeah, great. Thanks. Shut up. Mom. <laughs> right. And right. so George very kindly says, "What would you like to play something?" Oh, so I my said, gosh. "Okay." So I sat on. I played a ballad. And I ended on a kind of colorful chord with a like a sharp eleven and a thirteen yeah, right. and so on. And uh, he got up, and walked over to the piano, of course blind. Right. 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 He says, "Well, that was very nice, and I, I like the chord you landed on. It's attractive." He said, but we must never lose sight of the beauty of the triad. Wow. And I'm thinking, triad? Huh? Wow. <laughs> this is jazz. Aren't we supposed to have all those yeah. you know, extensions? Yeah, right. And then he started playing Mozart and Haydn and Bach. And I'm going like, what? Wow. I guess I better take that stuff more seriously. Wow. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it just knocked me off my feet, you know. Right. Yeah. Uh, and he's so right. You but know. as far as uh, harmony or scales or other, that's all in the mechanical department. You do the math, learn the notes, you know. Right. But, you know, if you got a voicing for a dominant chord that you like, or uh, say a minor chord, I call, I call one voicing that I like the uh, I feel pretty voicing. It goes, I feel pretty. Right. Ba -da -da -da. Right. So if I play G, B, C, E on an A minor 7, I've got the 
the G and the C. I've got the third and the seventh. I've got a tension between you, B and C. Right. So that voicing is really good. That's why I call yeah. attention to it a lot. Right. I feel pretty. <laughs> right. Um, oh my gosh. But I try to I try to uh, encourage students to um, separate out problems. Try to look at a tune, identify the problems, and solve them. Correct. The problem might just be the key. You haven't played it in that key that much, so you need to play scales and chords, right. diatonic seventh chords right. in the key and so on. Right, get familiar with the key. Uh, it might be uh, certain kind of modes are required that you normally do, right. don't use. Right, certain sounds. You know, whatever. Right. But uh, I encourage them to improvise with their right hand with no accompaniment with the left hand. I said, you know, there's... the. Good news is a piano player can play a chord to support the sound when he's improvising. The bad news is a piano player can play a chord to support the sound, and the melodic line may not be doing it. Correct. So right. I encourage them to practice just right hand right. alone, playing melodies, and see if you can hear the harmony and you're getting emphasis on the important notes. So know? important, right? The, the, yeah. To sit there and pretend you're a trumpet player. <laughs> Pretend you're a sax player yeah. and play lines like a trumpet player would approach them. Exactly. And breathe like a horn player would breathe, <laughs> right? That's why I tell students all the time. We got, you know, the, the, I'll use I'll use your line, right? You know, the good news is on the piano we don't have to breathe. We can play long, long lines. <laughs> yeah, right. The bad news is <laughs> we don't have, have to, to breathe. breathe. You know, <laughs> so yeah. Um, so okay, so um, so we've talked about some scales, arpeggios, some voicings. How about how about rhythm, the development of rhythmic vocabulary, rhythmic ideas? I find students struggle a lot with rhythm de development, being able to play quarter notes and eighth notes and swing. Well, I think I think that's where listening becomes an important element. You know, we we listen for information and inspiration. Right. You know? right. And and initially we may just want to hear. Right. This idea, I, to this day, I, I'll still do that. I may be driving down the road. I may pull over to the curb for a minute and sing back what I just heard to make sure I, I had it straight, you know. Right. Or when I get home, I'll recall it and play it on the piano right. or something. But right. Either one's good. But uh, it's, a, it's a gradual process of adding vocabulary of various sorts, you know. And... Listen, right. Listening has a huge effect on yeah. the outcome and what you do with it. You right. Know? You know, you're right. You know, we, we, all, we tend to want to think of vocabulary always um, uh, being linear. And there's, there's harmonic vocabulary, the voicings that we have to get under our hands, the rhythmic rhythm vocabulary, right? We, we got to start thinking a little broader. The student encourages the student to think a little broader than just thinking vocabulary in terms of a melodic idea. Yeah, yeah. You know. uh, but I, I think the melody is really important. I, I, it's, it gets to be more and more important to me. For instance, I think in, in classical music, uh, the uh, Sonata Allegro form, yes. where there's an exposition, statement of one or two or three themes, 
a development section where those themes are right. messed with right. extensively, right. and then a recapitulation right. to wrap it up. Right. Well, that's what we do in jazz. <laughs> we play a theme, we have a development section, and then we that's have exactly a recapitulation. Right. That's exactly right. Unfortunately, the development section very often has nothing to do with the theme. Right. Right. And, and it really hit me one time. You know, I like the way he played the melody, but I, there was no trace of it after that. Correct. And um, Right. And, and here's the thing about improvisation. It's, um, it's spontaneous composition. Right. But you still, still need a, prepar a lot of preparation for that. Right. When we improvise, I think we rely heavily on learned information. Correct. Uh, and right. I learned that the hard way. I, I, I have favored licks I like to play. Right. And I'd say, oh, I, I play that all the time. I got to stop playing that right. lick. That's no good. Right. And then I start hearing great players play the same idea a half a dozen times in a solo. In the same solo. In, in the, the same, same solo. Yeah. In the same solo. And I think, well, he must like that idea. I guess it's okay to repeat it. Well, and along those same <laughs> lines, going back to what George Shearing said to you, I remember doing a transcription on, uh, of a Red Garland transcription and, and discovering that he kept repeating this triadic idea. And, and I kept thinking, that can't. I must be hearing that wrong. It can't be a triad, and it can't be the same thing repeated because it sounds way too hip. <laughs> and come to find out, no, I'm not hearing that wrong. Yeah, it's the rhythm. Right. It's it's correct. It's absolutely correct. So, yeah, that's uh, fascinating. I remember in one of our, uh, back in the 80s, in one of our uh, jazz uh, small group, small group forums. Remember the small group forums? Yeah. You know, that that we used to have, I think, on Friday afternoons where right. you'd come in the Someone kitten hall. Play. Right. And I remember you said to somebody one time, and it's stuck with me ever since because I, you're, I know your uh, passion for melody, right? And somebody got done playing, and you said, look, you know, if you – if I can't remember the tune. It, it might have been Stella by Starlight or some classic tune that everybody would play. And you said, look, if you want to play Stella, play Stella. But if you want to write your own tune, then write your own tune. <laughs> Because what you just got done playing yeah. after you played the head of Stella didn't even sound like Stella, so I, and, I, and I it's stuck with me ever since all those years. I've I've really been trying to improve my improvisation in the last eight or ten years, I would say, and uh, I find it gets a little easier if I don't overreach. Right. You don't have to create a whole earth-shaking experience when you're oh, improvising right you can just play another melody but i can remember times on concerts when i'd play some tune play the melody and then kind of get there to the end of the chorus and think can i play anything as good as the melody you, that, right. I, I, let's let's give it a try you you're know right and yeah. that's why i found myself recalling bits and pieces of the right. melody and trying to build off of that right. you know right it's it's like uh, a matter of interpretation how we how we uh, account for things, right? You know. Yeah, yeah. You had another you had another great line at one of those classes. I remember you said to somebody, "I really love your ideas. I really love all your ideas, but I don't need to hear them all in one song." <laughs> I remember uh, one. Uh, <laughs> 
one trumpet player who played and and uh, afterwards I was I felt I felt bad about it but it just came out I couldn't seem to stop it I said you know you're like a butterfly flitting around the changes but you never land on any uh, yeah <laughs> well it's oh but you know the good thing was uh, a year or two later he was landing on them. Yeah, right. See, <laughs> you know that back then in those in, in those classes back in the eighties and that, and I, I look at those years so fondly, man. That, that was a great time. I miss them quite honestly. But, you know, you guys you guys were tough. You know, you Rich Jack, but we all learned a ton, man. If you didn't take that approach, I don't think we would have developed like players like we had. Well, another thing I feel very feel very lucky about it, is being associated with Jamie Aversold and Jerry oh Coker and David Baker oh and so gosh. on. Because those guys told the truth. Right. right. And, and we all understood that it was in a loving way and because we cared about helping. Oh my gosh. You know, now I'm not just trying to put you down here. I'm just trying to wake you up. You yeah. <laughs> I, re I, re I remember Rich in an improv class, we were playing, what is this thing called love? And uh, the trombone player in the back kept playing a, a D natural on that G minor seven flat five. And Rich goes, whoa! He let it slide the first time. I think he even let it slide the second time. Then he slammed the brakes on his, and he asked this trombone player, he said, why do you insist on playing a, a D natural on that half diminished chord? And the, and the trombone kid said, because that's the way I heard it. And Rich goes, well, then you need to pack up your bags and hit the road because he goes, you only have one question to answer here. Do you want to sound like a professional or don't you? And if you don't, hit the road. That was right in class. And then, and then Dan, then he starts the band back up and he points over to me to take my solo. I, I was playing octaves D flats. I was going like this. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make sure I play that, that half diminished correct, right? And, yeah. and Rich looked over and he went like this. <laughs> But those were tough. You know, you, they told you guys told the truth. Well, that that's the thing, and and uh, there's a way to be honest and and not be scathing. Correct. You, you know, that's that's the challenge for an educator is to be honest and tell the truth, but do it in a loving way. Right, in, in supportive, encouraging way. So, well, you've done that for many many years. And I can't, uh, I can't begin to thank you enough. Oh. Not, not just for me, but on behalf of literally, and you know this, everybody who's went through the North Texas program and influenced by you and influenced by your teaching and all the books and materials uh, that you have put together for, for students to learn for many, many years. So on behalf of the entire jazz world, man, thank you for everything. <laughs> You're welcome, jazz world. Thank you <laughs> for all the great music. All right, so uh, Dan Hurley website. Everybody can check out Dan. DanHurley.com. DanHurley.com. Go check it out. All his books are listed there. His materials where you can purchase it. Um, you're doing lessons online too still? Yeah, a few. I, I, I'm not really wanting to fill Get, up my days too, too much. Too much, right? Well, so, um, and then, uh, but check out his website. Do a Google search for Dan. Check out all the wonderful things he's done, not just recently, but throughout his entire life. Dan? Yeah, look on the books page down at the bottom where it says Jazz Hints. There's a bunch of free stuff there. That you oh, fantastic. On scales and voicings and all kinds of stuff. Fantastic. Dan, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on this. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, man.
Well, I hope you have found this Jazz Piano Skills podcast with special guest, jazz great Dan Hurley, to be insightful and, of course, beneficial. One of my mentors and teachers, Al Franzen, used to say to me after every lesson, never forget, the greatest thing about music is the people you meet through it. And the privilege of meeting and spending time with Dan always confirms Al's sentiment 100%. Don't forget, if you are a Jazz Piano Skills member, I will see you online to, uh, Thursday, Thursday evening at the Jazz Piano Skills Masterclass, 8 p.m. Central Time, to discuss this podcast episode featuring Dan Hurley in greater detail and to answer any questions that you may have about the study of jazz in general. As always, you can reach me by phone, 972-380-8050. My office extension is 211. You can reach me by email, Dr. Lawrence, drlawrence at jazzpianoskills.com, or by SpeakPipe, found throughout the Jazz Piano Skills website. Well, that's it for now. And until next week, enjoy the journey. Enjoy the pearls of wisdom shared by jazz legend Dan Hurley. And most of all, have fun as you discover, learn, and play jazz piano.